Hello everyone, your editor Daryl here. Morris and Peter are taking some time off for the holidays, so this episode is an interview Morris did back in 2014 with Ryan Dancy, the man who brokered the purchase of TSR by Wizards of the Coast and created the Open Gaming License. Don't worry, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. All the tabletop role-playing news We aim to amuse and we aim to enthuse And Morris is unofficial tabletop RPG So if we sort of wind back the clock in this Yeah, we go back you, unfortunately Well, we go back to a younger Ryan Dancy Yeah um, So a Ryan Dancy who's just entering the gaming industry Yeah What Your first job was, uh, was it the Isomedia and then you moved into yeah. Five Rings Publishing How did that come about? How did, did you get, what did you do? Go from college into... Yeah, so I had a child younger than all of my friends did Right And when my daughter Tila was born we were the only couple in our circle of friends who had a child. Right. So we suddenly became the wet blanket for everybody's social activities. <laughs> and I was brainstorming things that I could do with her that would not be totally disruptive and, and kind of kill the, the fun. And I talked to my buddy who I was uh, co-founding a, a tech startup with. And I mm-hmm. said, hey, we should get back into playing Dungeons and Dragons like we did in high school. Because sure. you can take a toddler to a D&D game, put her in a playpen, and yeah, she's right there. It's yeah. harmless, right? Well, we had both previously worked at a company called the Maxone, which is a PC and Macintosh hardware and software reseller. Right. This is before the internet, so they did catalogs and, and um, mail order. And so we had this whole idea about how you bought things at distributors at substantial discounts from retail merchants. So we thought we would set up a fake mail order company and use the fake mail order company to get a distribution contract so we could buy all of our DMV supplies at you know okay. 50% off of retail. Did that work? Um, Unfortunately, or extremely fortunately, depending on how you look at it, it was very fortunate in my case, our fake mail order company turned out to be a real mail order company. <laughs> and it turned out that there were actually a lot of people who wanted to buy stuff that they didn't have a local retail store. Right. Um, you know, this was kind of my first introduction to the fact that there are a lot of gamers who don't have the luxury of a really good full-line game store that's relatively convenient to them. Yeah. Um, and at the time, this is, again, before the internet really took off, there was no Amazon, there was no, you know, Paizo.com, there was no place to buy this stuff. Mm-hmm. So we provided really valuable service. And I um, I wanted to run advertisements for that company in industry magazines. And at the time, it was Dungeon & Dragon, that's yeah. where we started. And then, kind of, what next? And White Dwarf is a house organ for Games Workshop. They don't take ads from anybody. Um, and I found this little magazine called Shadis Magazine. And they were they were kind of uh, new and hip and indie, and like they had a lot of street cred. And people I knew that were kind of really into kind of the hardcore gaming, they were like, oh, this magazine's really cool. So I, I contacted them, and that's how I met John Zinzer, who's the C- still is the CEO of yeah. the so uh, this is our 20-year anniversary. I came to Gen Con in 1994 for the first time, and one of the reasons I came to the show was to meet John and to work out the details of our advertising. And I was the only person, I think, in Milwaukee that weekend who was wearing a suit. And I walked into the exhibit hall, and I'm, I've got my suit and tie on and my briefcase loaded with all my negotiating papers, and, you know, it's Gen Con. And sure. man, did I stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. I mean, today people would probably think it was the Holocaust. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're not a short man as well. So yeah, I'm pretty easy to see. Yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, I, I went into the exhibit hall and I tracked down the Shadis booth and I met John. And John, you know, he reached across 
um, this this table and through this crowd of, of gamers and you know grabbed me by the hand and he pulled me into the gaming industry and it was just a whirlwind from then on out. He 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 made sure that we got to all the right parties and we met all the right people. We spent a lot of time at the safe house, mm-hmm. and that was the year that trading card games had really exploded. So Magic was released in '93 and '94 was the release of Jihad, which was their Vampire the Masquerade license, and it seemed like every booth that we went to had a trading card game and they were not great. They had been rushed out because people wanted to capitalize on on the wave. And it takes, you know, six, eight months to, to make a game. And so these are really games people had basically made. Like I saw Magic at Gen Con 93, I made a game, I, I printed it. Yes. So we were sitting uh, at a table at the safe house. Myself, uh, John Sensor, Dave Say, who was John's partner at the time, uh, Dave Williams was there, uh, my partner Steve Milton, who's my partner at my tech company, and I, I, I'm pretty sure that DJ Trindle was there, but I'm not 100% sure. And, you know, we kind of looked at each other and said, we, we could do as well as these guys are doing, and we probably could do a better job. Um, and so we all kind of shook hands and said, let's make a trading card game. Uh, you know, and that was like the great adventure. We made Legend of the Five Rings. We brought that game to Gen Con in 95 in a preview set. We, we made a 100-card sheet with enough cards to make two playable decks. And we, we showed up at that, that year's Gen Con. And we're like, we're doing it. We're, we're making a trading card game. And that was kind of my conversion from a fake mail order retailer right. that turned into a real mail order company to being a, a game publisher. Right. Um, but, you know, the problem was that we ran that business as a joint venture. And joint ventures in America have very strange corporate tax issues. And there are a lot of weird issues that make joint ventures just kind of, right. yeah, kind of suck. Um, and we were all really good friends. So we said, look, let's, let's cut through all this. Let's start a brand new company and our company will pull its ownership of Legend of the Five Rings. John's company will pull John's interest in Legend of the Five Rings into this new entity. Right, the Five Rings Publishing Group. And that was Five Rings Publishing Group. Right. And that's how that got started. So, you know, we, when I say we, in this case, I, I mean me, we're young and arrogant. And we thought we had solved the problem of how to make trading card games. And my idea at the time was we would do a whole set of games with different genres and different licenses mm-hmm. to kind of capitalize on this model that we had built for Legend of the Five Rings. And we never thought we could make a game as big as Magic, but we thought maybe we could make 10 games that are each one-tenth as big as Magic, right? We can aggregately create a really large okay. publishing juggernaut, right? And we attempted to do that. We produced a ton of games. But all along the way, Everybody that was involved in the, in the project had kind of in the back of their minds the same thought, which is Wizards of the Coast should just buy us. We're local to them. They're, they were uh, in the Seattle area. We were in the Seattle area. My, the Firebirds Publishing Company is in the Seattle area. And I assume you, you knew the people involved at the time. Yeah. Sorry, knew, I've known Peter for years. Sure. Knew him before there was a Magic the Gathering. So there was a really nice kind of, wouldn't it be great if you know we all got together right. kind of thing. And we came very close once. We had some serious discussions about whether or not that made strategic sense, and that deal just didn't happen. And later that uh, in that time period, we kind of got wind that TSR was was having problems. Yeah. So I was and, going to ask you about that. How do you end up brokering a deal? Yeah. You're, you know, you're not part of either company. No. At that time. So yeah. How does that happen? Yeah. So uh, my father always taught me that uh, luck is when opportunity meets preparedness. Okay. We got very lucky, uh, which means we we had we were prepared to exploit an opportunity. TSR was outwardly a very well-managed company. Mm-hmm. They always hit their deadlines. In an industry that's notorious for people who miss shipping dates, they, like clockwork, would ship many books every month of the year on time, and they were of, of relatively high quality, so they didn't just throw anything in a box and ship it. In the fall of 1996 and the spring of 1997, 
it became obvious that there was a problem when they started to miss shipping dates. Yes. And uh, then Dungeon and Dragon magazine missed a ship date, which mm-hmm. essentially had never happened. Yeah, in I, I remember that well. 20 years yeah. or so, yeah. right? It was a big deal. Okay, so purely by coincidence, the guy that we had hired to be the CEO of Firebase Publishing Group was a guy named Bob Bramowitz. And Bob is uh, kind of a wheeler-dealer, uh, really good at personal relationships, knows a lot of people in a lot of different fields mm-hmm. of, of life. He raised a lot of money for Firebase Publishing, which was one of the reasons he was the CEO. And weirdly, one of his first jobs out of college was working in the sales department at TSR. He was there for like a summer, you know, selling uh, stuff back in the battle days when they had like a knitting company, you yeah. know, all this weird stuff you may have read about on the internet. So he kind of tangentially knew a person who knew a person who knew a person who knew Lorraine Williams, who was the CEO and the larger shareholder at TSR. So Bob, who is a very smooth, uh, pleasant, charismatic guy, gets on the phone with her and essentially sweet talks her into letting us come out and take a look at the business. And Bob knows nothing about hobby gaming, right? He, he's, he's a pure business guy. He knows how business works. He doesn't know anything about gaming. So he and I flew out to Lake Geneva and we went to, to TSR. And it was, uh, it was pretty tough. Um, the company was really in distress. They had really hidden a lot of how bad things had gotten from the outside world. The staff was very worried. They didn't know if they would come to work and be locked out of the mm-hmm. building. I mean, it was, it was truly a company in crisis. You've written about this on the internet more than once. Yeah. But it sounds from what you've written in the past that you were shocked by what you saw. I was. And you were aware there was a problem, but were yeah. you aware it was quite that severe? I mean, I'm an entrepreneur, and I think entrepreneurs are optimistic by nature, and so I, I, I had a hard time imagining it could be as bad as, as it was, mm-hmm. but we were there for a reason. Sure. There was no way Lorraine was going to have us come talk to her about this topic unless she had a big problem. So, I mean, I was prepared to see that there was a problem. Um, I wasn't prepared for how bad the problem really had become. Yeah. Right? And, and the, out, the output of that meeting and a, and a couple of follow-on trips out there is that Bob and Lorraine agreed that for a certain price, TSR could be acquired. And we represented to Lorraine that we had a reasonable chance of arranging financing for that deal and uh, that we would get back to her within some amount of time, 30 days, I think it was. But had you spoken to Peter at all at that, no. at that point about that? No. Um, you know, I think Bob and I both knew that Peter was going to be the, the answer to the problem of how does this get funded. Yeah. Um, and so uh, when I, 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 the, uh, I was very fortunate. I, I, uh, I inducted Peter to the Adventure Gaming Hall of Fame. And at his induction speech, I, I told the story of the million dollar facts. Um, so we had all these trading card games we were producing, which I mentioned before. We thought we could make, you know, 10 games that were one tenth yeah. size of magic. That's really expensive. And we had, in fact, spent ourselves in something of a hole. We were probably nowhere as deep in that hole as TSR was, but we were in a hole. And so uh, we got back from these meetings um, with this agreement from Lorraine to buy the company for a certain price. And uh, Bob calls up Peter and he says, I want you to lend me a million dollars. And Peter says, there is nothing on earth that would compel me to loan you a million dollars. Bob says, what's your fax number? Back in the day, faxes. So we faxed over the cover letter of the term sheet we had negotiated with Lorraine, which said, without naming a price or a date, that the purpose of the term, the deal sheet, was to buy TSR. Fax that to Peter. About 10 minutes goes by, the phone rings. Peter says, can we have a cashier check in your office in a week? <laughs> That's fine. Peter, send that money right over. Um, you know, and then Wizards immediately engaged. Like, they they, they took that deal over in, in an instant. Um, and it was a it was a very good deal uh, for, for Firex Publishing. They agreed to acquire us at the same time they acquired TSR. That was kind of the price to get access to, to our deal. Um, but Peter and I like each other a lot, and, and I think we have a lot of 
some of the same strat strategic ideas about things. And frankly, I think Wizards should have bought us earlier than that anyway. So it really wasn't a negative to Wizards that they had a buying product yeah. fellowship. Um, it was positive for everybody, you know, kind of all along. And, you know, Peter went out to, to Lake Geneva and uh, was able to, to, to convince Lorraine that um, it was time and that he was the right person to, to make the transition with. And, uh, you know, the board at Wizards was very supportive of Peter and uh, did what they needed to do to make the capital happen. And next thing I know, I, I work for Wizards of the Coast and Dungeons and Dragons is in the building. And that must have been a dream come true. Oh my God. Yes. So, uh, yes. I am one of the very few people you will probably meet who ever actually did the thing they wanted to do when they were 12 years old. Right. I wanted to publish Dungeons and Dragons when I was 12 years old. And I have published Dungeons and Dragons. I wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I still do. Yeah. yeah. They can still have, you know, Elon Musk took a million dollars to ride the, the Spaceship One, right? I think that's 500,000. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, this web thing can work out for, I don't know. Uh, yeah. So it was, it was absolutely a dream come true. And I love Dungeons and Dragons. And I love everything about it. And I came to love the people that work on it. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them are my very best friends today. And the fan community that you enter when you become a part of the Dungeon Dragons world is unbelievably awesome. So it was my privilege to be involved in that. I, I never looked at it as anything other than I was extremely fortunate and it was so cool. So at the time, uh, Peter took over the, the running of the, of the business day to day, and uh, Bill Slavisek was appointed uh, essentially to be in charge of the R&D department. Yeah. Um, but you know, Peter has a whole company to run. And so uh, by the end of that first year, Peter um, made the decision that they needed, he needed to step away from a day-to-day -day operational role. And he trusted my judgment and trusted my, my vision and asked if I would be willing to take on the business half of that task, sure. Bill running the gaming half, to which I immediately said yes. Uh, and so late in 1998, I believe, uh, I, I took that job over and I was, I became the, the head of the tabletop RPG business unit in the Dungeons and Dragons brand. That's when I first heard of you, I think. Could be. I mean, that's partly when the internet was getting big and, yeah. you know, sites like Eric Noah's site was springing up and things like that. Yeah. And name was popping up and things. Yeah. But did you have a plan at that point how you were going to save, well, I'm not saved yourself, but how are you going to fix that problem? No, I didn't. Uh, well, that's not really true. So, as a part of the acquisition, we had roughed out a strategy for what needed to be done. Like, making a new edition of Dungeons and Dragons. That was obvious. What does that edition look like? What does it cost? All those variables, that really wasn't in the plan. Um, uh, so one of the big problems we found at TSR was that there was a big disconnect between the designers and the business people. Mm -hmm. And the designers were never told what it cost to make any of the things that they right. created. And as time had gone on, they had started to make products that literally cost more to make than they made when they were sold. Which does sound like a mistake. Yes. Yeah, you, you cannot you cannot make that business work. <laughs> so um, fixing that problem was obvious. Like we want to make the cost make sense. Sure. Charge what should be charged, not make a product cost too much. Is there an issue perhaps of um, you know uh, product lines being splintered like I mean how many different settings there are yes. so different settings. Yes. And of course no yes. one's gonna buy twelve settings. Yes. Yes. That was so obvious to me. Like you, you splinter your fan community across all these little mm -hmm. individual slices, and it's hard to remember now, right? This is, what did we talk, close to 15 years ago? Mm. Longer than that. TSR's annual catalog in 1996, let's say, probably had 150 tabletop role-playing game releases in it. Wow. Like, they would release That's five to ten things yeah. a month 
right? And the ability to buy and consume that content is beyond anything the market could bear. Mm -hmm. And what was happening was each new release in a line would sell less than the previous product because people still haven't had time to digest the thing that they bought, sure. you know, last month. And of course, things get ever more specific as well. Right? Yeah, Before, like, focus gets narrower and narrower. Yeah. Okay. So one of the luxuries I had at Wizards is that because TSR had catastrophically failed, we were enabled to make radical changes. Right. If TSR had only been slightly messed up, you know, we would have been required to make slight changes, yeah. right? But it was a complete smoking crater in the desert. And at that point, what's to lose, right? You might as well try the Wahoo crazy stuff yeah. because 10% here it there's can't get any worse. not going to yeah. fix it. Yeah. yeah. So um, Wizards is and, and was, and I assume still is, a very data-driven company. And we wanted to make decisions based on good data, not just Wahoo crazy what we think are the right things to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Lisa Stevens was attached to the business team at that point as our business analyst. Yeah. And so she started to produce a lot of spreadsheets and uh, inventory analysis and cost analysis. We had a, an excellent market research team at Wizards of the Coast. They began to produce pretty good data on what people were doing with the stuff we were selling. And all of that began to congeal around this idea that immediately we had to stop the bleeding by substantially reducing the number of things we were producing. You know, and I, I make this joke all the time that it's better to sell seven units of one thing than to sell five units of two different yes. things. Yeah. Uh, it seems like it shouldn't be, but the way business works, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we ruthlessly cut into the schedule. And, and you know, there were some casualties. There were some really good ideas for products that didn't get produced, even though they may have been all the way through design and were ready to be printed, just because they became non-strategic. Yeah. Um, and that's painful. Creative people hate to see their work go to waste. And, and, I, and I hate to see work go to waste. But it was, it was kind of the right thing to do, you know, for the business. Um, you know, they had... Three role-playing games. They had Dungeons and Dragons, Alternity, the Saga system. I'm probably forgetting one or two other things. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. So you know, we got to wind these other lines of business down. You can't just go out on day one and say we're cutting it cold because you're really damaging retailers who are carrying a lot of inventory, distributors carrying a lot of inventory, and players who become vested in a game system. They don't. You're essentially telling them they're out of luck. That sucks. Yeah. So addition you, changes don't tend to go down well, do they? Yeah, not at all. Well, addition changes is tough. Try imagine just whacking a whole game system. Yeah, that's no fun. Um, so by the end of of of, uh, of 1999, I think we had all the pieces in place to start making really good decisions. We knew we were going to third edition. We roughly knew what third edition was going to be. We we had some ideas on how to sell it. We had gotten the business back to profitability, mostly by just stopping making a bunch of stuff that didn't yeah. make any sense. Um, uh, I think the community was was losing the fear that some of them had that we were going to turn Dungeons and Dragons to a magic expansion. They still say that sometimes. I, I know they do. It's been 15 years. Time to let that go. Um, uh, and so we started to turn our attention to how are we going to sell the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons, right? Keith Strom, who was the uh, business manager who worked yeah. on my team, one of the things that he observed really early on was that our biggest competition wasn't Vampire the Masquerade, it wasn't GURPS, it wasn't Rifts, it was another edition of Dungeons and Dragons. There were more people playing earlier editions of D&D than there were playing any other role-playing game. Mm -hmm. That was our actual competition. We needed to come up with a way to induce those people to upgrade, to, to make a transition through the edition change. Sure. If we if we failed to do that, it wouldn't matter what else we did. The the game wouldn't wouldn't have any traction, and that was kind of the genesis of like how do we get these people who are playing you know original D and D basic D and D 
AD&D first edition, AD&D second edition, right? I mean, there was a whole tree of, of, of product out there. Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance, Mistara, blah, 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 on, on, on. How do we get them all to kind of come home to the mothership? Because we don't have time or the interest in making a, a conversion product for every campaign setting, a conversion product for every edition of D&D. Like, all the little corner cases and strange things people had cooked up down through the years, all of which had some people playing them and were vested in them, right? And, you know, eventually we just struck on this idea of saying, look, let's just not make that stuff. Let's let the community make that stuff. Let's empower people to unleash their creativity and plug all the holes in the, the, the giant yeah, things that it's not worth you make. Absolutely, right? And, you know, uh, the analysis we had coming in from Lisa was, look, the core books is where all the profit is. Eventually, you start making these supplements and nobody buys them and they don't make any money. Mm -hmm. So, you know, focus on making core books. Focus on making a small number of really good adventures. Focus on making tools that people can use in their own games to make their own campaigns and, you know, do the stuff they want to do. Let's put our guys on that. We have the best RPG designers in the world. Let's make the stuff that really has high impact. Um, so then the next question is, what are the terms going to be? You know, if, if, uh, if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, I want to make, uh, I want to make a supplement for your game. You know, what's the royalty rate? What's the approval process? Well, I spoke to Monty Cook a couple of months ago. Yeah. He, he mentioned that at first you were the person pushing the OGL and even like designers like himself didn't understand at the time, why, what, why should we give away our game system? Yeah. And it was, it was largely down to you, you know, pushing the idea. Um, I tell people I was in the room and the magic happened. Right. Uh, you know, kind of my job was to be a cheerleader and to move that ball down the field. Um, you know, the open gaming life was something I believed in very, very, very strongly. And uh, there had certainly been foundations built for that idea at Wizards of the Coast. People don't remember this, but one of the very first products Wizards of the Coast ever made was a thing called the Primal Order. Okay. And the back of the Primal Order has conversion notes to use the Primal Order with a whole variety of game systems. Mm. And it is the opinion, and still is today, of the publishers in the hobby gaming business that you require a license in order to make a product that is compatible with their game system. Yeah. Whether you believe that's true or not is irrelevant. The industry believes that is true, and that is the standard operating regime. And uh, as a part of the Primal Order project, the people that were around Peter at the time, they created or envisioned a thing called Envoy, which was supposed to essentially be a compatibility or translation layer. So you could convert out of a game system into Envoy, and then out of Envoy into another game system. You create like an intermediate sure. layer between two games. Yeah. yeah. So the idea that, that there should be this kind of ability to use other people's mechanics predated my arrival at Wizards of the Coast. Um, and... Uh, I think that one of the reasons that we were successful was is that this was something that Peter had been thinking about for a long time. Right. He may not have thought about it in terms of like creating an open license, mimicking some of the software licenses, but the overall idea that you know there was something here which should be free for everybody to use without a, a huge you know overhead of royalties and approvals and all stuff that that was part of Wizards' DNA from early on. So did you have any? Was there any resistance at all to the idea at first? Oh my God. Yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of resistance. Um, I mean, you say Peter already was thinking on those lines, so presumably it didn't mainly come from him. No, it didn't come from him at all, and and that's why the open union license happened. Right. Um, because the people that were most upset about it would go to Peter to complain, and right. Peter would shut them down. If Peter had had the slightest doubt about the only union license, it would not have happened. Like, big American companies don't take risks, right? That's just mm. dumb. And it was a huge risk. So it really required leadership from the very top to, to happen. Um, there were a lot of people in the company who 
Um, okay, so let's say there was a certain group of people who said, we don't want to lose control. That was their first issue. Like, we want to own this brand. We want to express it the way we want to express it. We don't want to see stuff published that we don't like. Um, you know, it's about control, yeah. right? That was one group of people. Then there was another group of people saying, this is done from a business perspective. Like, every one of those products that's made is going to be money that we could have made. Why aren't we making that money? Why are we letting somebody else, you know, earn that, that money? I presume your response is those are products we can't make money on. Yeah, yeah. Or as a small company, maybe can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we kind of shucked and jived on the first question and, hey, look at the monkey and, you know, maybe, maybe they'll be okay. And, but on the second question, I think we had a really good answer. It's like, we don't want to make those products. That is the stuff that really, it really damaged GSR. It's not, we want, we don't want to damage Wizards of the Coast like that. Exactly. You know, and then I think it dawned on a few people that they could be those people. They could make their own products and they could be tapping into the D&D network, yeah. and, right? And so maybe a few people that originally were really against it quietly came around, came around to the idea. Maybe there was a little something, something there for them, right? Okay, that was good. Um, there were a lot of thought leaders inside Wizards who had to be convinced. They started off very negative and we showed them our data and made our business case and talked about other things like how it works in software. You know, we didn't have to invent this concept. We, we borrowed it from the software world to show that like you can, you can have this, this thing where there's a company that makes a product and then there's a bunch of other people who make products that are related to it. You're not hurting the value of the, of the, the primary company, right? And at the same time, Wizards was getting pretty deeply into retail stores. They had originally started four or five stores. Uh, for a whole host of good strategic reasons. And then they bought a company called Gamekeeper that had 50 or 60 stores. So suddenly they're in the business having a lot of retail stores. Uh, there was a guy who worked at Wizards at the time. His name was Scaff Elias. He was one of the very early R&D guys who worked with Richard on Magic. And Scaff says in a meeting one day, look, the reason we own retail stores is because we want every kind of game to sell better. Because we are the market share leaders in trading card games and in tabletop role-playing games. And every time there's a success in one of those categories, our products sell better. Yeah. It's, a, it's a situation where a rising tide lifts all boats, but it lifts the biggest boat more. So the only, the only thing that's going to happen if a bunch of people take our intellectual property and go make really great products is we're going to sell more Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. So we, we, we like to call that the scaff effect to, to kind of have encapsulate this whole business idea of like, it's totally okay if a bunch of people go out and make really successful products because eventually the result of that will be people will play more D&D. And, and our new business of third edition is selling core rule books. And you don't sell the core rule book to somebody again, you sell it to them once. So, so, so dropping ahead, so that's the yeah. theory. So you go ahead a couple of years, you've done this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, looking back, I say, yes, that definitely oh, 100% worked. Okay. And how much of a success was that? Yeah, I absolutely say it would work. Okay, so we have some data. So I left Wizards of the Coast at the end of 2000, early part of 2001. Yeah. And, uh, the, the wave of third edition was still rising at that time. So I don't, I, I don't have official numbers about what happened afterwards. I wasn't there for 3.5. So I, I can speculate, but I don't actually know. Okay. But this is what I know. In 1989, when TSR made the transition from first edition to second edition, they sold a hundred, they sold 286,000 copies of the player's handbook in the year of that transition. Okay. When we transitioned from second edition to third edition, we sold 300,000 copies of Players Handbook in one month. And it got better from there. Okay? So I think that that success was not 
because of the open gaming license, and not because of D20, and not because we fixed the RPGA, and not because we had a better relationship with our community, and not because Wizards of the Coast had good marketing. It was all of those things working together as part of a cohesive plan, right? So I think that we had a lot of objectives for, for the open gaming license at Wizards. We wanted to see uh, great new products get made, and a lot of really great products got made. We wanted to see new talent enter the industry. The, the people who make uh, uh, tabletop role-playing games at the time were in, were aged. A lot of them have been in that business for, for 20 plus years and they were getting ready to move on to something else and there wasn't a huge cadre of people coming up behind them to, to replace them. Open Gaming created uh, that cadre. Mike Merles is one of those people, right? The guy who went into the edition of Dungeon Dragons. He's one of those guys, right? Um, we wanted to explore design spaces that 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 uh, that our existing designers wouldn't explore. Uh, you know, sometimes when you don't know you can't do something, you try it and you find out that you can. And so empowering a lot of people to just try to do cool stuff meant a lot of really cool stuff. You know, I mean, like, like, just risk, like someone was yeah. thinking, it's yeah, exactly. it's a risk, yep. but Wizards doesn't have to take that risk. That's right. Yeah. right. So the, the one thing that I think Wizards didn't succeed on, unfortunately, is the idea that they could pull in from all that cool open content that's being created and take the very best of that stuff and merge it into Dungeons and Dragons mm -hmm. and, and, and advance the Dungeons and Dragons game by by using the best of the best, right? That, to me, that's the truly open ecosystem where Wizards opens D&D &D and then Wizards brings back the other That hasn't happened. Why should I do that either? No, no, it hasn't really happened. It really hasn't happened. And, you know, I, I'm sure there's a million reasons why it hasn't happened. But that's kind of the, that's kind of the last major step to, to that has yet to really happen, right? Is that is that true feedback? If you look at something like, like Linux or Apache or any of the big open source software projects, right? They're all driven by bringing that stuff back in. And and until that really starts to happen, I think that there is an unfulfilled promise at the heart of, of open game. You know, another problem we had at the time, and, and people forget this, but the, the role playing game industry was was in crisis. Um, it wasn't just TSR. It was brutal. Uh, Role-playing companies were dropping on flies, mm -hmm. and nobody was making very much money in that space at all. And uh, a lot of uh, really talented designers and publishers that had been around for a long time were going out of business for a, for a whole variety of reasons. You know, and one of the things that we that we believed again, when I say we in this case, I, I mean me, was that there were so many different game systems and so many different ways to play role-playing games that people were getting subdivided in these little niche markets. And if the niche collapsed, you lost all the people. You didn't just lose one person, you left that you lost that whole gaming group or maybe a club or whatever, a fairly large group. And we wanted and and, the, and one of the reasons in my opinion was that the industry did have this, it does have this opinion that you have to license access to game engines for each other. And so every guy with a great idea for a game made a whole new game instead of just taking what was great from an existing game and making a new version of that game. So every single publisher had their own house system, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I, I know this term is a little bit loaded, but there's this concept of the fantasy heartbreaker where it's such a great idea in this one little narrow area, but you have to make a whole game and the rest of it isn't very good, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're, you nailed spell casting or combat or whatever, yeah. but you know, that's not a game, that's a feature of a game. Yes, yeah. And then you had to go do all the rest, you know this, you've done your own game. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot of work to make a complete role playing game. Yeah. And not so, all of it you want to do either. You know, you've you done that bit that, yep. yeah, yeah. Yep. So, you know, we, at the time, I thought one of the effects of open gaming is it'll collapse that, it'll collapse that function. 
instead of people always saying, I have to make a new game from scratch, they could take an off-the-shelf game and just change the part of it that they wanted yeah. to make better. And the advantage would be that they wouldn't have to sell the whole game. They could just sell the part that they changed. And it makes the marketing very easy for them. And it, it's easy to attract players to something who want that thing. Like, I want realistic spell casting or yeah. whatever. Like, okay, well, here's the game that does that. And oh, by the way, you don't have to learn how to play it because you already know how to play yeah. it. You know, and at the time, uh, we got a lot of criticism, and I got a lot of criticism for the idea that this was like anti-competitive, or it was, uh, it was, it was bad, it was evil. Like we're taking creativity out of the world. All these great games. Yeah, I mean, there was certainly a sentiment from some areas where it was like, okay, everything is going to become yeah. trendy now. There will be no other yeah. games. Yeah, of course, yeah. that didn't happen. No, and I never thought it would. You know, that, that's 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 like a that's a that's a comment that's often attributed to me that I never made. I never thought there would be only one game. Um, I always thought there would be fewer games. And I thought the games that would survive would be the ones that had really strong player networks. Yeah. The World Darkness games, Rifts, GURPS, like the games that we all know are successful. That D20 and Open Gaming wasn't going to affect them. They had really good player networks. Yeah. It was going to affect all these games you've never heard of because they're gone, right? Well, the thing that was really interesting in hindsight is at the same time that we were kind of collapsing the function of, of gaming, of role-playing gaming kind of in the market, there was this rise of the indie games, the stuff that was coming out of the Forge, right? And these were really divergent games. These weren't fantasy heartbreakers in the classic sense of I changed one little thing and then kind of all the rest wasn't great. These were games that had no one had ever made ever before. They were wildly divergent. So at the same time that maybe the diversity in the mass market, I don't know if I want to use that word, the larger market for role-playing games was declining under the fresher of the only gaming license. At in a different segment of a different market, there was an explosion of creativity as people were trying out, you know, all these new yeah. ideas in, in gaming. You know, those games, they don't have large unit volumes. And a lot of them aren't very big. They're, they're 50 or 75 or 100 page books. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the rate at which they can be created and, and expressed and kind of adopted and then, and then moved on from is very, very high. I, I hope, I like to believe that that it was it was a synergistic process where at the same time people were getting really focused on Dungeons and Dragons, a different group of people were getting focused on doing wildly divergent things, and they would meet in the middle and, and cross pollinate, right? I think that has happened to some degree. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it happened as, as much as some people of that time thought it would happen, but I think it, it has happened somewhat, right? But I think uh, Mike Mills had a force weeks, didn't he? 10, 15 years ago. Yep. Yeah, I mean, so Luke Crane is the guy who makes a game called The Burning yeah. Mill. And uh, based on what the numbers I can see, I would say Luke is probably the most successful publisher of role-playing games to come along as a totally fresh startup company with its own game system in a very long time, right? Uh, I know that Fate uh, does really well for uh, Evil Hat and uh, and Fred Hicks, um, and, and they, may be, they may be close to comparable. But, I mean, I, I think that, that Luke is probably that guy. If Luke had come to our industry before 1993 or 1994, Luke would have been the next guy in the line that includes Steve Jackson, Kevin Sambita, and Peter Atkinson. Yeah. He would have started his own game company. He would have produced a successful line of tabletop role-playing games and then diversified into whatever caught his fancy. But he came after there was this structural collapse in role-playing, which was not a result of open gaming. It was a whole bunch of factors that are very complicated. And as a result, like, Luke is the most successful person of his generation, but it didn't happen for him. And there may not be anybody, again, in that, in that tradition that goes all the way back to Gary and Dave. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, 
but you know, Luke made some really great games: Burning Wheel, Burning Empires, Mouse Guard, um, Torchbearer. These are fantastic products, and I like to think that 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 the work that he and his friends and his peer group have done will affect the larger, you know, more more mainline. I'm trying to avoid. I mean, we're talking about a very small market, so it's like yeah, let's say it's like mass market, like Monopoly, but more of that stuff is going to come into you know D and D and World of Darkness and that kind yeah. of stuff. That kind of uh, ideas about narration and storytelling and, and empowering players and um, really interesting systems for how you modify the, the game environment as you play. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's all kind of from that indie RPG movement uh, uh, that Luke is kind of the, the product of. Um, and I love seeing that stuff, you know, start to appear. And of course, things like Kickstarter and things like that yeah. help facilitate that to a massive extent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kickstarter has, has been a, a reboot. Uh, it's totally, uh, okay, so four or five years ago, uh, at Gen Con, uh, Gen Con used to do like an industry day the day before Gen Con, and you could go and hear people lecture on various topics related to publishing. And Peter Atkinson did one of those top, did one of those panels one year, and at, he had Q&A at the end, and I asked him, I said, hey, do you think that you could raise money today to start a role-playing game company? And he said, no, I don't think it can be done. And then he asked me, do you think you could do that? I said, no, I, I don't think it can be done. It can totally be done. Like, and, and it, it's back. As well. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, the door was closed, and the door's open again. So, and it's open to anybody, and who knows what's going to walk through that door. You know, magic was a shock to everybody. There's no reason to make an RPG shock. All these things sort of seem to happen periodically. Yes. I mean, there was the OGL which you were involved with, which I think is one of those things. Yeah, yeah. Kickstarter is certainly yeah. one of those things. Yeah. I think I've heard you mention that just something like desktop publishing was one of those oh, things. Oh, yeah. Like 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. But, and, you know, who knows what the next one might be in yeah. 10 years' time. Yeah, absolutely. So these things sort of happen on maybe, maybe not cyclic, but on a periodical basis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes, like, when we most need them. The, yeah. the coincidences are startling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So going back to the OGL, um, I think I've also heard you mention that aside from the sort of business uh, benefits to it and the business arguments for it, there's a, a sort of, uh, moral is the wrong word, but a, a more altruistic kind of argument in the, uh, what you can put D&D out there and then, you know, it, it can't be brought back by, I think the crazy users Precious wither its place, or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Like, that might not be the exact words, but it does something I've always said. Something like that. And that obviously is true in that yeah. pathfinder and things like that. Yeah, which, yeah. I mean, that was that definitely in your mind at the time? Yes. So, hobby game publishing companies have very little assets in the traditional sense. We don't buy factories and, and real estate and tooling. Yeah, yeah it's all IP. It's intellectual property, right? TSR, when it ran into problems, borrowed money. And the security that they pledged against the money they borrowed was the copyright interest in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And they borrowed money from several different banks. And they had sliced the copyright interests up pretty thinly. Various different books and various different things had different copyright interests. And had TSR actually gone into bankruptcy, I believe it's very likely there would not be a Dungeons and Dragons being published. Or if it is, if it was published, it would be something radically different than what it is. Because the banks who couldn't have cared less about Dungeons and Dragons, they would have fought over the value of those rights, and then they would have probably auctioned them or had some process for somebody to buy them, and who knows who could have ended up owning them, right? Just look at the D&D movie rights there. Yeah, it's a a cluster. So, you know, one of the thoughts I had with Open Gaming License was, while we're doing good for Wizards of the Coast, and I 100% believe that we were, we can also do something that says that this thing that we love transcends corporate ownership. Yeah. And 
will survive in the form that we are giving it forever, right? It, no company can ever screw this up again. And I like Wizards of the Coast and I like Hasbro and I'm not in any way trying to say that I think they're bad stewards. I'm just saying it's just off the table. It, it can't happen. Um, there will be, you know, Dungeons and Dragons is now Shakespeare. It will be with humanity forever. Yeah. And that is, you know, awesome. Like, good for everybody. Uh, I don't think it hurts Wizards of the Coast a penny sure. that, that that's true. So even if, you know, Paizo suddenly decided tomorrow, yeah, they won't, but if they did, yeah, suddenly decided, hey, we're not going to do that anymore. Yeah. We're just going to do, I don't know, golden yeah. plushy toys and, yeah. and card games. Right. Uh, and Wizards moved on into a radically different right. system and didn't open up yep. fifth edition at all. Yep. Yep. That's still there. Yeah, somebody can pick it up. And you know, I could just, you know, yep. run a Kickstarter. Yep. Say, okay, I'm going to do D and D. Yep. Not D and D, but yep. you know. Something yeah, I mean, 3.75. in the early days of, of the Open Gaming License, uh, you know, there were people who basically took the system reference document, put art in it, and published it. Mm. They they thought there was a business to be made selling the same book I was selling. Yeah, no, I, no, <laughs> I don't I think they did very well. But, but yeah, what was, what was the feeling behind that? I mean, from, from, from Wizard's point, I don't, was that after you left, was it? For what? Uh, when certain companies started releasing basically a sad with that. No, I think that, 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 I think there were, I think you could have bought one of those products in the fall of 2000. Did that bother you guys? No, it didn't. Um, and we planned for that. So <laughs> when we decided the pricing for the core rule books for third edition, we set them at $20. Yeah. And we could do that because we were going to print in quantities that no other company in gaming published. And they would be full color, Hardback books. The player's handbook came with a CD with a character yeah, creator on it yeah. for twenty bucks. Right. The best that our competition could do would be to publish something around twenty dollars. It would be on very low quality paper in black and white, yeah. soft cover. So, what's the value proposition if you're a customer? You can buy the actual Dungeons and Dragons book that has the actual Dungeons and Dragons logo on it. You can buy this crappy ripoff, which yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I think there is a whole nother thing you could do, which is you could have made a really super high-end value product. Like the thing I was, I actually was kind of wondering what he was going to do was like do a hundred dollar player's handbook, yeah. leather bound, gilt edge. A couple of people went the opposite way and tried to produce, you know, tiny ones. Yes. Well, didn't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that was a, yeah, that was a whole different ball. It's funny what you can do to mess with the format. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I was, I was on a big crusade. One of the last things I did when I was at Wizards was I was on a crusade to say we've, we've, we've done a really good job now of exploiting the, the low cost end of the market. Mm. Now we need to really target the high end of the market, right? So I had, when I was at Wizards, I had this dream, like, I want to make a hundred dollar product. And right. I mean, that just sounds like nothing now, but this is, you know, 2000 and that was unheard of. Um, when we priced the Forgotten Realms campaign setting book at $40, the person who was in charge of sales for Wizards of the Coast came to my office and said, because you set that price point, you are going to sell half as many books as you would have sold. Is that $10 really worth it? And I said, I think you're wrong. And oh, by the way, here's the math, and yes, it's totally worth it. <laughs> Even if we only sold half as many, it's ten dollars of profit. Yeah, right. It's totally worth it. Um, Forty dollars did not turn out to be a significant price differentiator. Yeah. And today, there's lots of books sold at forty, fifty, sixty, yeah, sixty. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, uh, the hundred dollar product to me was always this kind of mythical number. It's like, man, if I could sell a product for a hundred dollars, it could be awesome, and I could do so much cool stuff. You know, in a in a product for a hundred dollars, mm. um, and I understand that there's a there's a smaller market for that than there is for a twenty dollar player's handbook, um, and I understand that there are people that are going to look at that and feel like I I can't I can't buy that I I don't live in a world where I have a hundred dollars to spend on a gaming product, but in reality, a lot of people have a hundred dollars yes. to spend on it, right? And it's we all kind of know that now. Yeah. That's going to become obvious, but 
you know, this is yeah, even years, years ago. Say they haven't yeah. often had. Yeah, yeah, and since then there have been a couple of hundred dollar products. Uh, uh, AEG did a book, um, World's Largest Dungeon, that was hundred bucks, and uh, Monty did a book called. Uh, Service. Yes, the tollest book, which yeah. is 100 bucks. Um, but man, I'm still waiting for something to really. We had, so I'll say, we had this idea. I wanted to make the ultimate Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. And the ultimate Dungeons and Dragons was you sent us a description of the people who played in your group, and we re illustrated all the core rule books with iconic characters that were your characters. Wow. Okay. Right? And we would make a Dungeon Master screen that was your characters. In an adventure, spoke things and <laughs> yes, and I mean I don't even know what it would cost, right? But there's some number of people out there who well, would, of that would pay that, right? Yeah, uh, you know, and and at various price points, like you know, somebody famous would write an adventure for so, your so, so group. Sounds like Kickstarter pledge level. Now you can totally <laughs> exactly. Now there's like a way to do this, yeah. right? But you know, kind of the high end of the of the comic market has been explored. There's a lot of really high end special publications. There's certainly a lot of high end, you know, figurines and statuettes and mm. props and stuff that. There is a market there, and people are exploring that. Yeah, well, there's a high end of everything. Yeah, that's right. But there's, there's, not, really a, there's not really a high end for tabletop role playing games. Like if you went over to the exhibit hall and tried to buy the most expensive tabletop RPG product that was a game, not a like a table or something, yeah. I, you probably couldn't spend more than a hundred dollars. Yeah, no, that's very true. Yeah. yeah, maybe buy some like rare, you know, uh, collectible thing. Yeah, but like produced for sale today. Nobody really goes and sees what's what's out there, and I think that would be a fun place to go and, and innovate. So maybe someday. So you were, I mean, you know, working on D&D was a dream come true, yep. but you weren't there for that lot. No, I mean, wasn't. Was that, was that disappointing to be moving on and it was, know, um, after such a short time? It was a challenging time for me at, uh, at Wizards of the Coast. So um, when I went to work at Wizards of the Coast, they had an all-hands meeting, and the entire company gathered, mm -hmm. and it was about 200 people. That was in 1997. Yeah. In 2000, there were more than 2,500 employees at Wizards of the Coast, and... The company was in retail and was doing Pokemon. And uh, the company was vastly bigger in every dimension than it was just a few years earlier. Because um, I think Mike most recently said there are approximately 15 people currently working on D&D. Okay. How many people back then yeah. were working on D&D? I think that's excluding yeah. you know, retail people and, all, yeah, yeah. and licensing and brand money. Actually yeah. working on D&D. There's a lot more than 15 people. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'm just going to mentally begin to kind of run through my list of who I, who I know. Uh, so there was probably 30 people in RPG R&D. Yeah. There were at least 10 people on my brand and business team. The art was a little bit different because there were some in-house artists and then a lot of freelancers. Yeah. But there was still a very large art support team. Uh, you know, there's at least 10 people minimum in art. Uh, four or five people doing marketing. And now I'm not even counting like accountants, uh, yeah. Support staff. I don't even count those people, right? It was a much, much, much larger yeah. team. Yeah, than 15 people. Yeah. Well, it was a much bigger business then, too. I mean, mm. uh, I, like I said, I don't work for Wizards. I don't know what their numbers are, but sure. I would guesstimate that the Dungeons and Dragons business at Wizards of the Coast today is probably a third the size it was when I was there. Mm. And I'm purely speculating. Yeah, sure. I don't know. Okay. So, you know, you moved on from there and you went to work. Uh, the CCP directly from there. No, no. Uh, I started it so uh, in the, in the fall of 2000. I knew that my exit at Wizards was rapidly approaching. The company didn't have a great place for me anymore, and I didn't feel like there was a lot more that I could do with Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, I really wanted to promote my leads into more senior positions, and um, there weren't any, so I created one by exiting. Um, 
And uh, I started a company called Organized Play. Oh, of course. Yes. And, and the idea behind Organized Play was that we were going to create the tools that Wizards had built for trading card games and role-playing games and make them available to any company that wanted to, to use them. Yeah. Uh, and I ran that company for a couple of years, and uh, then I had a consulting company. And I was uh, on a consulting deal in Las Vegas, and I got a phone call from a recruiter who asked if I would be interested in taking a job in Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh, and apparently, I'm one of the few people who said yes to that question. <laughs> I surprised you. I mean, I, you know, going from D and D to working on a, an, an MMO. I uh, I knew that my transition was was eventually going to lead me to MMOs. Uh, right. You know, I I, I view uh, tabletop and MMO as a continuum of the same thing. To me, they're not two different businesses. They're just it's just an evolution from 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 where tabletop was to where MMOs were going. So, uh, I have always been uh, kind of keeping an eye on the MMO space and. Um, trying to do as much as I could to be employable uh, if the opportunity sure. arose. Um, and that opportunity happened because of Mike Tinney. Um, White Wolf had been acquired by CCP yeah. the year before, and Mike was on their leadership team. Mike was the president of White Wolf, and they needed to hire somebody to come and run their marketing department, and Mike uh, insisted that they consider me as a candidate and got me, you know, got my foot in the door. Um, and, uh, and, and I owe him for that. It was great. I mean, he, he bootstrapped me into the MMO business. So, um, and CCP was the exact right company for me to go to. They were small enough where I could have an impact. They had a lot of strategic questions to answer, and I had a role in answering those questions. If I went to work for Blizzard, you know, I'd be a, a cog in a giant yeah, machine. Yeah. I couldn't do much. I, I, the things that I do best, I couldn't really do. Um, so being CCP was fantastic. Sure. Uh, it was it was a great it was a perfect match for like where I was in my life and, and, and what the opportunity was yeah. and, I, and I learned a lot uh, there you know the people who founded that company are still running it so I I got to hear all about how they started Eve you know and mm. drew it from nothing to, to what it is today um, from the people who did that work it wasn't like handed down you know the TSR nobody who started TSR was there well Tim Mohan was there but he didn't start he was there a long time everybody else was. Was that kind of a, a learning experience for you in that you, you could then take that to move on to Golden yep. Works? Exactly. What's the Pathfinder thing? Yeah. I, I jokingly say that I learned the lessons of what happened to CCP better than people who run CCP. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, um, I, I like to think that, that, uh, I heard all of the really important stuff and, and able to apply those lessons. And I, and I hope I can apply those lessons uh, in MMO space. Right. Um, whereas they, uh, they're struggling a little bit, so. Sure. Yeah. So, so you exit CCP. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, do you have this idea for Pathfinder Online at that point? Do you, I mean, was it Pathfinder specifically, or was it an MMO? No, I, you know, the first thing I did was I wanted to see what options were out there, so I, I contacted a bunch of MMO companies to see what their interest was yeah. in hiring me. And uh, I did a bunch of interviews, and I looked at a lot of products, and I didn't really find anything that I thought was really a strong match. Um, and so I called Lisa and I said, Lisa's the CEO of Classic yeah. Publishing, and I said, hey, what is your strategy for, for online gaming with Pathfinder? She says, well, you know, we have a strategy to have a strategy. Why don't you come explain it to us? Okay. And, uh, and I, I, I wanted to do a sandbox game. So I think the business of MMOs right now is really badly broken. The, the games that most people are familiar with are, are financially unsustainable. Um, in the industry, they're called AAA, which means the best of the best, mm -hmm. and they're theme park games, which are games which are a lot like World of Warcraft. Mm -hmm. And the, the tail end of, of, of the era of those games is, is honest. And the, at the tail end, those games cost between 100 and 200 million dollars, and they take seven to 10 years to develop. They yeah. take a thousand person team to get built. And they, they have not so far shown, uh, a return on that level of commitment that is commensurate with the risk that is being taken. Right. So, as a result, there are no AAA MMOs in development today. 
Nobody is making another one, okay? So I knew in 2010 that something needed to change and there needed to be a new business model to make this make sense. And uh, when I went to talk to Lisa about making a Pathfinder online, my initial pitch was, let's do a $50 million game. We'll have a 300-person team and it'll take five years, right? right? Oh, I'm so radical. I'm half the money, right? <laughs> 75% of the time. And she challenged me. She said, look, I heard all your analysis and I think it's all true. Why are you coming to me with this idea for a $50 million game? I mean, it's not that much less than $100 million. How small can it really be, right? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I have a fairly complicated business model that I built. And I sat over a long weekend and I just chopped and chopped and chopped. And it didn't make any sense. And the more I chopped, the less viable the business made. We, we were having to cut functionality and features and not uh, generating additional revenue. Right. And so we were just losing more money faster, right? On, on paper. But then something magical happened. And like, I cut so deeply that I got to the point where I'm like, well, heck, like if we make this really small game, even though we'll appeal to a relatively small audience, on paper, it pencils out and it starts to be profitable really quickly. And the beauty of an MMO is it's a service, not a product. So once it's profitable and self-sustaining, it can invest in itself to get better over time. You don't have to rely on investors and you don't have to rely on capital. You just rely on revenues from the customers, right? And so I think we found a sweet spot where we can make an MMO for a very small budget with a very small team on a very fast timeline. And we can get the thing to market and, and, and use the revenue to, to create all the rest of the stuff that will come, sure. you know, online in a couple of years. Um, and that, that de-risks the, the, the plan substantially. You know, one of the big concerns that Lisa had was if I do a license for Pathfinder online and the rights are tied up for 10 years and you fail, I've lost 10 years of time to find a better partner. Mm. So if we can do this on a really accelerated timeline and you fail, I've got all that time back to try again, find the next partner. So first, you want to find fifty million dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, so you don't just pick Stanley for one million. Yeah, yeah. It was the tech tech demo, wasn't it? Yeah. So our first uh, our first Kickstarter was we had a fifty thousand dollar goal. Yeah. We wanted to build a technology demo, which is essentially a was vertical slide. Fifty thousand. I don't remember. Yeah, we raised three hundred seven thousand, which was awesome. Um, and so the vertical slice was um, it's not a game, but it's everything that you have to make to make a game. So we could go to an investor and say, look, we're, this is a legitimate effort. These yeah. people we are hiring, they can do the graphics, they can do the networking, they can sure. do the programming, yeah. right? This isn't actually a game, but it looks like a game and it shows we can do all the game yeah. things. Um, and, and we, we didn't necessarily think that we would do a second Kickstarter, but, uh, that year Kickstarter just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we all kind of looked at each other and said, man, we'd be dumb mm-hmm. to not, to not uh, ask the community to, to back us again. Um, because it gives us freedom. Like I don't have to answer to a to an investor somewhere. Like first dollar in came from the public, yeah. and I always can hold that up and say I have to do right by my customers. I can't just do something because you want to follow the, the the trend of the day or you know whatever you saw in the newspaper. It's like nope. The people who back that Kickstarter are the people I'm working for. They put their money in before you did, so they have they are the people who have the most impact on on what we do. And then we made so many mistakes. Um, anybody out there doing a Kickstarter? Don't do a Kickstarter at Christmas. It ruins your Christmas. <laughs> like my family is like Ryan. What is wrong with you? I'm like I'm Kickstarter. I got. I'm so stressed. I, can't I, really admit, I, I don't like it. I, I honestly, I, it was nuts. There, there, there are moments when it's exhilarating, but yeah. the bits where it's not. Yeah. Uh, you know the world, the whole world. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like, like, it's too much. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, I think we asked for too much money. Um, I I had this whole philosophy that 
I had to tell people how much money we had to raise in order to make a meaningful change in our business plan, which was to accelerate development, right? So it was going to cost us a million dollars. I can't, I can't move the needle very much with a hundred grand. I had to get enough money to get a bunch of extra people and move a lot faster. In retrospect, I don't think we had to have an analysis that deep. We could have said, we're trying to raise a hundred thousand. We, we could have, we could ask for a different number and been hitting stretch goals and, and, and the, the tempo of the campaign wouldn't have been, oh my God, are they going to make it? It would have been, they made it easily. Yeah. How much bigger can it get? I think some advice I, I've, I've heard and I've passed on is that you set, setting your goal low is always a good idea because you have to hit that we have funded thing as early as possible, even if it's not really a, yeah. the, what you really, really need. Yeah. As long as you can do something. Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot, man. Yeah. <laughs> but I passed on to other people. So I'm like, I learned the lesson so you don't have to. Yeah. Yeah. So Coblin Watch has been developing Pathfinder online for what, two years? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, we essentially started the tech demo in, uh, in mid-summer of 2012. Yeah. We began work on the actual game in, uh, in the January timeframe of 2013. And that's all sort of going to schedule, I take it, all going on. So what's, what's the reaction? Because you've got alpha play yeah. testers, you've got things like that. What's, what's the feedback? Yeah. It's, it's been awesome. Um, Okay, so uh, in order to play in our alpha, uh, you know, with no questions asked, it costs a thousand bucks. And if you charge people a thousand dollars or something, they're probably gonna like it. And people have. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. sold ninety some odd alpha accounts. Wow. Yeah, that's there were some in the Kickstarter, the first Kickstarter, and some in the second Kickstarter, and some have bought since then. Sure. Um, but it's awesome because they're so excited about it, and they are predisposed to have a good experience. Mm. And then when they play. And they enjoy what they are playing, and they do. Everybody who comes in after them comes into an environment where everybody's having fun. Mm. Everybody's, it's upbeat. It's a positive thing. Yeah. It's like, how cool is this today, right? Yeah. You're set that tone from the very first day. Yeah, you play the UA modes all pretty Yeah, good. they're like super events. Yeah, 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 sort yeah. of thing. It's so, fantastic. I mean, you describe it as a sandbox game. Yeah. Now, I, I'm not totally clear what you mean by that. What, yeah. what, what, what is a sandbox game yeah. in terms of an MMO? Yeah, okay. So, uh, so we see there's being two kinds of MMOs. Um, theme park games are games like World of Warcraft and yeah. it's, it's clones. And in a theme park game, the primary mode of interaction is between the player characters and the environment. And uh, a theme park game is called a theme park game because you do the content over and over and over again. Like you go to the theme park, you go to Disneyland, yeah. and you ride Space Mountain a hundred times. Yes. Right? Well, if you're playing World of Warcraft, you know you go to a raid and you do that exact same raid over and over and over again. Okay. Um, so that's a theme park game. In a sandbox game, the primary mode of interaction is players interacting with other players. And the players create their own content through those interactions. So um, a, a, a theme park game is all about content. I have to make the theme park. Yeah. A sandbox game is all about systems. I create interesting ways for players to interact with each other. Right. And coincident with the fact that theme park games cost too much, making systems is a lot cheaper than making content. Uh, the other problem that theme park games have is that you finish them. You can do all the content, and there are many people who don't want to do the same raid, you know, week after week after week. They do it all and they're done, right? Well, in a sandbox game, there's no end game. The players are the content. The players interacting with each other creates the content. And humans are infinitely interesting. Let's give me an example. Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, sandbox games typically have very, um, detailed Economies. They have, you, you harvest resources, you craft them, and then you use the things that you craft. Theme park games, you typically don't use a lot of things that are crafted. Most of the gear you have are things you got from, from the environment. They're not things built by other people. So, in a sandbox game, there's, there's a harvesting game where you have to figure out where the best resources are and go get them. Then there's a crafting game where you have to acquire the resources at the lowest price, 
craft based on what the market wants, extract profit from the crafting, and people pay you for immediate currency for the stuff that you're crafting. So you can, you can, you know, you can, you can get into feedback, like earn money, buy resources, to make money, okay? And at every point along that, that process, there's an opportunity for conflict. The conflict is not always combat, but humans conflict issues are all the time. So conflict could be when I'm in the wilderness and harvesting resources, people try to stop me by killing my character or blocking my access to that resource. Or maybe they try to ambush my caravan, take my industry. So, but I can play you, but yeah, okay. from what I hear, that sounds like Eve. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that the, the Eve does that in space? That's the same model, isn't it? Yeah, But you can also have conflict, for example, where uh, let's say I want to sell plus one magic daggers. And based on my skills and abilities and my social context, everything I do in the game, it costs me 100 gold pieces to make a magic dagger. So I can't sell my magic dagger for any less than 100 gold pieces for a game money. Yeah. Maybe you are a much more advanced character or you, you have a better social context or you found other resources and you can produce that dagger for 99 gold pieces. You can create a conflict with me by pricing your dagger at a price I can't make a profit. Exactly. Right, right. And then you take that, which is basically individuals, and then you blow it up and it creates, it's just social. It's like me and a hundred of my friends are trying to make daggers, and you and a hundred of your friends are trying to make daggers. And, and then you have this giant network of interconnected points of conflict where we could derive some meaningful interaction from. That's it. So we said larger scale world building elements to as well. So our plan is to begin with what we call a limited viable product, which is a small feature that makes sense to make, and then grow over time. So we have a design document that has a lot of crazy stuff in it that we never really talk about. It's in there, right? Um, uh, relatively quickly, you will be able to go to places on the map and build structures which are persistent, and other people can interact with them, see them, and they will have a meaningful effect on changing the world. In the midterm, you'll be able to build whole settlements, which are like little forts, and they have lots of structures inside of them. And the people who run those settlements make choices about the buildings that are constructed and the resources that are consumed. Right. right. In the very long range, in the far future, I have this vision of the module store, which is like the app store. And you have a toolkit and you can make a, you can make a, yeah, you can make content. And it's a little bit like a theme park and sell it. And we'll split the revenue with you just like Apple splits okay. the revenue in iTunes, right? So, you know, in the distant future, there could be the sandbox which we build, and then interesting theme park content which people who are really good at making adventures yeah. could build. And then you as a player could pay to access that, and the people who made it would generate revenue. They have a job being adventure designers in the far future. I've just learned something about <laughs> yeah. I think you just clarified in, in my mind what Pathfinder Online is for the first time, yeah. because I've always been a little slightly yeah. confused about what you were doing there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. Pathfinder Online is a game about exploration, adventure, domination, and development. Yeah, no, I think it was that, uh, that sandbox phrase which was yeah. which was sure. confusing me, and uh, there's yeah. a sudden link to Eve in my mind. Yeah, suddenly connected the dots. Suddenly clicked it. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I don't want to say that it's Eve with swords, but we respect Eve and learned a lot from Eve. <laughs> and we would like to we would like to continue the tradition of great sandboxes yeah, that Eve sure. started. Yeah, no, that sounds fascinating. <laughs> so I'm putting the the Pathfinder point of view, I suppose. I mean, obviously, you're not, you don't work for yeah, no so, but, um, yeah. But presumably, that's going to be part of their sort of overall, like Wizards are doing, uh, overall branding yeah. kind of um, expansion. So the, yeah. is, uh, that, is that, I mean, from your point of view, would you say that's a, a, a general theme at the moment with some of the larger companies that they are definitely trying to expand, you know? 
Yeah. Because they're all doing comics, and they're doing toys, yeah. they're all doing Legos, or <laughs> right. mini, mini, mini figs, or mini whatever figs, those yeah. things are, yeah. plushies, and yeah. uh, movies, if that, if it can. If that yeah. happens, yeah. Yeah. and they've always done not novels yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like a mid to long term future yeah. of RPGs. Yeah. Is, is the brand going to be the thing rather than the game? I think that Paizo is going to be a tabletop RPG-centric company as long as Paizo exists. Mm. That's their DNA. Um, their success with the adventure card game uh, might mean that they have two strands of DNA. Yeah. But the card game and the tabletop role-playing game are similar enough products that the people who work on them, have they can, they can move back and forth between those two teams. The skill sets and things you do for a video game are completely different. Mm. Same thing with like a movie production. Yeah. Um, plush toys, right? Yeah. So things which are outside of Paizo's core competency, Paizo is smartly saying, we either need to find a partner or make a partner to, to do that work. Paizo has always been very conscious of the value of their intellectual property. And partly that's because of their experience with Wizards of the Coast. When they were a licensor for Dungeon and Dragon magazine, everything they made was owned by Wizards of the Coast. Mm. The copyright was all owned by and Wizards. And when that was taken away, they had a crisis. Well, yeah. I mean, yes, there was a crisis, but also, you know, Lisa knows how much money she spent on art for covers and content for magazines, mm. none of which she owns. Yeah. Now, that wasn't a surprise. I'm not trying to imply this was a shock, <laughs> yeah. right? But, you know, they ran those magazines for two or three or four years. I don't know how long it was. And at the end of the day, they didn't own any of it. And they know how much money they spent on it. So, I mean, right at the heart of that company is the knowledge of how much money they spent on somebody else's intellectual property. So, building their own brand, their own intellectual property, is just what they want to do. It's common sense. Absolutely. And they have done a fantastic job of it. I mean, Pathfinder is very well positioned. It's very clean. It's very easy to understand. There's not a lot of bizarre stuff going on in there. There's not a lot of holdovers from previous, you know, regimes of management or whatever. It's the mm. same team that built it, still running it. Um, and they're doing a great job of, 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 of making products that people who like Pathfinder will like. They're not going to make products that they think their core customer would find non-interesting. Like they want people to be happy at the mm-hmm. fact that they're doing video games, plush toys, and comics, right? They, it's, it's all good. Like, we're all, it's Pathfinder, it's awesome for everybody, right? It's not like, oh, comic books are terrible, we're doing one anyway, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, they're, they're great about managing that, that mm-hmm. brand. Um, and they're in a very weird place, right? They're the first company in the history of the industry to ever outsell Dungeons and Dragons. No one's ever been here before. So, the stuff that D&D has been doing for years, Paizo is doing some of that stuff too, but they're not doing it just because they want to copy what TSR and Wizards of the Coast did with D&D. They're doing it because it's the right thing to do with, with the Pathfinder intellectual property. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you say that outstanding being the, obviously we were aware of the ICB2 yeah. bandings and things like that, yeah. which aren't gospel. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, people sort of talk about DDI subscriptions. Yeah. Uh, the Dungeons and Dragons inside of the subscriptions yeah. for D&D, which yeah. obviously aren't counted in these things and yeah. all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and of course, for the last two years, Wizards hasn't really reduced publishing it. Publishing it, exactly right. So it's not hard to tell that. To be fair, out of not that upsetting, there would be an embarrassment yeah. to, to an extent. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's going to continue? Do you think... <sighs> you know... I mean, I'm not asking you to predict the future, it's just that... I, I think there has been a change. I think that Pathfinder is now the flagship brand in the yeah. tabletop category. I think the scaff effect now applies to, to Pathfinder. And DMD has given up 
structural things which will be very hard to get back. Uh, there used to be a Dungeons and Dragons section in major bookstores, mm. and it, they don't have that anymore. Right. It's either a role-playing section, or yes, in some cases, yeah. it's a Pathfinder section. Um, the RPGA used to be very large and very active in retail stores, and that has almost been completely replaced with the Pathfinder yes. Society. Yeah. So, saying nothing about the quality of Dungeons and Dragons, the structural issues that Wizards has to either recapture or rebuild, mm. very, very, very difficult. And Paizo is not going to sit back and let them do it without fighting back. Paizo is going to fight to keep their position. Sure. So Wizards doesn't have the luxury that Paizo had of, of not having to, to fight an active opponent, right? Sure. It'll be a struggle. I actually think that's good for everybody. Um, you know, if Wizards and Paizo really go at it, you know, Knight and Tong, everybody's going to see cool promotions and great products. Oh, yeah, of course. It'll yeah. be awesome. It's, it's, it's going to, yeah. yeah it's it's going to force both of them to bring their A game. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. That's, it, it, what's okay. bad for the consumer? And we, and we, the customers, get... Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so. But, you know, my intuition tells me that um, that, uh, that Paizo has uh, has moved into new territory now. And, um, and I think they're positioned to hold on to it. And we'll just have to let time see what... What occurs, right? I think there's maybe a danger of at some point Paizo getting into that area of over specialization and narrowing the focus. Yeah. At which point they're going to have to relaunch. Yeah. And of course, Wizards are relaunching right now. Yep. And yep. obviously have an awful lot of attention at the yep. moment. I mean, that, yep. that's going to factor in in yep. some way, presumably. It's a, it's a, it's a bigger challenge for Paizo than it is for Wizards right now. Because Pathfinder's core value proposition for its launch was just keep playing 3.5. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, that was the pitch. And so how do you take a brand that is based on don't change and then tell people now you have to change, right? That is a transition that nobody knows how yeah, to make. Exactly. Right. And, and, and if and when it happens, uh, you know, it'll be all new ground. Yeah, sure. Things. I mean, that's what I've been wondering for, for quite a while. Where yeah. can they go? Yeah. 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 But, but you know, they don't need to right now. They, it's weird. Like when we did the 3.0 plan, we assumed there would be a fourth edition in 10 years. Mm. It had been roughly 10 years from first to second. It had been roughly 10 years from second to third. We just assumed that there was some natural pacing that there would have to be a new edition mm. of, of Dungeons and Dragons, you know, 10 years after third edition. And 3.5 and Pathfinder, which is very close to 3.5, have now been going for more than 10 years. So maybe that's not so true anymore. Maybe we don't. Maybe the industry and the players don't have to have a major... Uh, you know, yeah, sure. Uh, major can, yeah, engine kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I have, I have to say, I have not played any of the new version of Dungeons and Dragons yet. I read the basic D and D, the five E version, the five E yeah. version. Yeah, I don't know what they're calling. I'm trying to use the right term. Right? There's <laughs> no, no five E. We can just say five E. Okay, then we know what we mean. All right, five E. Um, I would say that fifth edition is much closer to third edition than it is to fourth edition. Oh, I personally think it's closer to second edition. Okay, that's my feeling. Probably. Okay, so. I think maybe Wizards kind of agrees that there doesn't need to be a major engine transition. Mm. Like, they've got a pretty good game engine, and they don't need to make major radical changes, yeah. right? So, bully for everybody. Well, you kind of get a sense from then that this is the last edition that they plan on making. I mean, who knows? The regime changes frequently over there, so you know, different people will be making decisions yeah. in 10 years' time. But, yeah, yeah that's, that, that seems to be the feeling I'm getting at the moment. That yeah. I'm actually surprised they made another edition. I... Uh, I think I may be even on record somewhere saying I think fourth edition is going to be the last edition of DMA. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Like, why does Hasbro want to keep making new editions of Dungeons and Dragons? Make a really great edition and just publish that for a long sure, time. Yeah. And then make movies and video games and novels and 
everything yeah. else is going to come down the pike. Um, you know, this the old era where you had to make a new game engine. It may be passing. It may be all about content now. Like, can you write great adventures with your game? Yeah, maybe I, that's I'm more important. Master that. I mean, that yeah. is central to their. Paizo's got it in spades. Yeah. They're turning those adventure paths into their own brands. Mm-hmm. I mean, their Rise of the Rune Lords, which was their first big adventure path, that is becoming a thing, mm-hmm. totally separate from from Pathfinder. Oh well, yeah, it's like uh, it's like Wizards Rock Mountain, yeah. Time, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a whole campaign setting. I mean, Paizo did it with a story, yeah. which is pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah, I think Wizards are trying that with their two and your dragons. Yeah, I'm sure they are. And things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to see a lot more of that. Yep, yep. There's something called Princes of the Apocalypse coming next year. Okay. Something like that. I can't remember. That sounds awesome. So, I like uh, dragons, like Apocalypse. <laughs> Way to go, Mike. Make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, anyway, I think we should start wrapping this up. Okay. We've been going for what, an hour and a half now. Oh, it feels like time to fly. It feels like nothing. And um, we do have dinner engagements. Oh, yes, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it was fantastic. Thank Thanks you, for doing it. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. And um, we're, we're going to have to do this again. Yeah, it would be great. Anytime. Yeah, that would yeah. be fantastic. I'd love to return to the EN World Studio. That would be Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> studio as it is. Yeah, yeah. that will be as much as this. Yeah, now this is upscale. Yeah. Apparently, I now have to read this to you. This is the official podcast of Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG news, which you can find at enworld.org. You can find show notes at morris.podbean.com or wherever you found the podcast. If you feel like they deserve it, you can support the show on Patreon. In return, you will receive exclusive bonus content. Just go to patreon.com slash morris. If you're interested in his babbling nonsense, you can follow at Morris on the Twitter. Send your emails to morrispodcast at gmail.com. Not all of your emails, just the ones you want us to see. That's it. I'm bored now. You can go away. Shoo, off you go. Goodbye. Get out of here.